0: Game Cool Books, episode 32, Forms Among the Dust. With chapter 23, The Bridge to the Stars, we arrive at the end of the book, but not of the story, and certainly not of its thematic ramifications for us as readers. We see the culmination of this stage of Lyra's growth, the twilight between innocence and responsibility. As she deals with the unintentional betrayal of her path has led up to, and she resolves on what to do next. We see that other bridge, at once more ethereal and more substantial than the bridge of packed snow she so narrowly crossed, and we consider the choices Lyra and each of her parents makes when confronting it. Having just parted from the last of her companions, the armored bear, King Yorick Bearnison, as she proudly named him, as he reminds her of her new name, Lyra Silvertongue. As she's hardly just escaped by a leap from the fall into the chasm with that bridge of snow, Lyra takes a moment to recover. I just don't know what we got to do, Lyra sobbed. It's too much for us, Pen. We can't she clung to him blindly, rocking back and forth and letting the sobs cry out wildly over the bare snow. And even if if Mrs. Coulter got to Roger first, there'd be no saving him, because she'd take him back to Bolvanger or worse, and they'd kill me out of vengeance. Why do they do these things to children, Pan? Do they all hate children so much that they want to tear them apart like this? Why do they do it? but Pantalaimon had no answer. All he could do was hug her close. Little by little, as the storm of fear subsided, she came to a sense of herself again. She was Lyra, cold and frightened by all means, but herself. Once more, she is close to despair, but Pan is there to comfort her, and we are reminded of the physical comfort. Lyra longed for like the embrace of Macasta. How the physical manifestation of the demon can provide something of it even when a person is alone Lyra's own resources prove more effective anyhow than the clumsy ministrations of Thorold and though Pan is no more able to answer her questions simply asking them provides some solace in talking to him she is quite literally brought back to herself and then, in an interesting contrast to the fairy tale mode, she checks herself. She says, "I wish," and stopped. There was nothing that could be gained by wishing for it. Now, I'm not sure that that's entirely true. Maybe nothing can be gained by wishing alone, but perhaps nothing could be accomplished without it either. And. Whatever Azriel's mysterious power of calling entails, it seems to involve some of that magical efficacy of the wish. And so does storytelling, as Pullman acknowledges in his sketch named for the grim fairy tale. To carry further what we saw in the last couple chapters, our final impressions of Lyra's world are surreal combinations of extremes like Azriel's cozy house, all alone in the waste. And now we get the still more fantastic juxtaposition of the light of the aurora and its beachside city against the snow and the stark landscape. And in terms of sound, the weight of the words bleak and blaze help to reinforce this contrast. We've had the other worlds compared to the stars by Kaisa. And he emphasized the different quality of the distance between us and them, as opposed to the distance between this world and the others. But here, as we're told, though there are billions of stars, like diamonds on velvet, they were outshone by the aurora, outshone a hundred times. Never had Lyra seen it so brilliant and dramatic. With every twitch and shiver, new miracles of light danced across the sky. So, it's uh, described by Kaisa before as holy. You'll recall here it abounds in those miracles of light. uh, Brighter of course, than the stars, uh, so distant as they are, they're still part of this universe. But the city, which is not, is actually more clear and solid still. Whereas the rest of this present world she's surrounded by is bleak beyond imagining. The city in the lights is welcoming and the world she's in, full of mountains, sharp as scimitars. And so now that returning and going back is as impossible as any wish, Lyra still does turn and look back longingly, but she can't see any evidence of Yorick or the fight going on behind her. Pan, meanwhile, continues to look ahead. As he's done more than once during this pursuit, he narrates for us what he sees. They're just beyond the peak, he said. Lord Asriel's laid out all his instruments, and Roger can't get away. And then the description from him passes neatly back into the narrator's voice, who introduces what will prove to be an extended simile between the aurora and the workings of some elaborate electrical apparatus. As he said that, the aurora flickered and dimmed like an amberic bulb at the end of its life, and then went out altogether. In the gloom, though, Lyra sensed the presence of the dust, for the air seemed to be full of dark intentions, like the forms of thoughts not yet born. In the enfolding dark, she heard a cry. Lyra! Lyra. So what Lyra feels is still more unsettling, maybe, than the actual darkness. It's that presence of dust. And she's had intimations of this before, uh, when leading the children out of Bolvanger. Here, it's not Asriel, but Roger calling to her. And in a portentous phrase, that plays on the sound of the word gloom just before it. She hurries on at the end of her strength through the ghostly gleaming snow, those heavy clusters of consonants again. And she calls back to Roger. Again, the contrast between the kinds of calling that Lyra does versus Asriel. Um... The element of surprise obviously is not an object here. Um, This reflects not only her strain and distress, but the fact that among her scattered emotions now is concern for Roger above all else. And those emotions are connected back to the whole range of her experiences so far on the journey in the way that Pan goes on changing. Rapidly, in his agitation, lion, ermine, eagle, wildcat, hare, salamander, owl, leopard, every form he'd ever taken, a kaleidoscope forms among the dust. So that repetition, although in a different sense, of the form, those forms of thoughts not yet born, that was the dust. Now Pan explicitly connected with it and with all of Lyra's experiences as manifested in the different animal forms um, come to be a kind of kaleidoscope uh, whereas light creates the images in a literal kaleidoscope it seems like it could be the dust that's casting this uh, series of images that uh, Pan uh, makes visible to us here Uh, far from settling, right? He appears to be undergoing something reflective of a new level of awareness, um, something corresponding to this great anxiety of Lyra's, uh, which might make us think back to a name that I didn't dwell on before, that of the bear counselor. Uh, Suren was his name. We're calling Sorin Kierkegaard whose uh, pseudonym wrote The Concept of Anxiety. But to really delve into that would be quite a research project. Um, To get back to the story then, she reached the summit and saw what was happening. That verb, to see, used intransitively, withholds the object at least to the next sentence. And that's sentence starts a new paragraph too. Uh, it all helps to contribute to the drama, to the suspense, to the awe of this moment. Fifty yards away in the starlight, Lord Azrael was twisting together two wires that led to his upturned sledge, on which stood a row of batteries and jars and pieces of apparatus already frosted with crystals of cold. He was dressed in heavy furs, his face illuminated by the flame of a naphtha lamp. So he had another lamp bearer. And crouching like the sphinx beside him was his demon, her beautiful spotted cloak, coat glossy with power, her tail moving lazily in the snow. In her mouth she held Roger's demon. So all that suspense is building up to that particular image. It's also... One of the first descriptions we get of Stelmaria in the story likens her then to a sphinx also. And all demons, of course, pose the riddle of human growth and development, closely tied to the classic form of the riddle of the sphinx. And the holding of one demon by another also brings us back to Mrs. Coulter's capture of Tony Macarios, and perhaps other children too, by a gentler but no less awful means uh, of her demon taking theirs from them. Roger's helplessness here is pathetic as it points up Lord Azrael's heartlessness as inhuman. He casually knocks him to the ground and concentrates on his experiment, trusting to his demon's bite to keep the child from running away. And where would they run? Stand against a backdrop of illimitable dark at the edge of a cliff above a frozen sea, though that landscape will soon be transcended, becoming the frame for Asriel's impossible dream. Then, as Lord Asriel connected his wires, The aurora blazed all of a sudden into brilliant life, like the long finger of blinding power that plays between two terminals, except that this was a thousand miles high and ten thousand miles long, dipping, soaring, undulating, glowing, a cataract of glory. He was controlling it, or leading power down from it, for there was a wire running off a huge reel on the sledge, a wire that ran directly upward to the sky. Down from the dark swooped a raven, and Lyra knew it for a witch-demon. The witch was helping Lord Asriel, and she had flown that wire into the heights, and the aurora was blazing again. He was nearly ready. That finger of blinding power then becomes Lord Asriel's finger beckoning to Roger, anthropomorphizes the powers at work uh, not unlike Thorold's name pointing us back to the sky gods um, of Norse mythology uh, or Greek it's also reminiscent of the powers that Dr. Frankenstein harnesses um, in the portrayal in the films particularly (laughs) of the crashing of the storm uh, that then gives life to the monster. Um, that's certainly another of Asriel's many romantic forebears. The Raven of the Witch, who must be up there flying, though we can't see her, reminds us of the master of Jordan College and John Faw, both of whom were accompanied by black birds, as is Pullman, according to what he says in all his interviews. The power of Asriel holds over the aurora and over the boy are coming together. Roger helplessly came, shaking his head, begging, crying, but helplessly going forward. But then Lyra and Pan break the spell, at least temporarily. And following on all his anxious changes as he did in the battle with the golden monkey, Pan changes rapidly, and so does Roger's demon. Flick, flick, flick seems less a rendering of a onomatopoetic sound here than it is of the visual representation those flickering changes would have if you made them into sound. And it's not a coincidence, I think, that it also evokes the working of film. I'll never understand, and so I never tire of saying how the producers of the Golden Compass movie could have cut such a cinematic tour de force as this final scene must have been from their movie adaptation when they released it at Christmas time all those years ago. We can only hope that the BBC is doing a better job this time around in their miniseries. Anyway, this confused skirmish uh, represents the final direct confrontation with Lord Azrael, um, Or rather, the first direct confrontation with Lord Asriel is the only time we've seen anyone actually fight back against him, I think, in this book. Uh, but curiously, he personally doesn't seem to even take part in it. Again, he's trusting to his demon, and he's concentrating on his instruments. Her description a spotted beast is um, is also reminiscent of or at least could possibly suggest uh, Dante in the Inferno um, rather than the ancient myth of the Sphinx, the symbolic leopard, though what exactly it symbolizes is not entirely clear, I guess, in the dark wood at the start of the Inferno, or Geryon, the emblem of fraud, who physically conveys the pilgrim and poet to the lowest circles of hell. So Asriel trusts also, perhaps, to another combatant. Both children were fighting her too. That is his demon. Or fighting the forms in the turbid air, those dark intentions that came thick and crowding down the streams of dust important to remember we're all still operating on the understanding of dust as original sin with whatever power that Lord Azrael is able to exert by willing it um, maybe those are overlapping here maybe those are indistinguishable here but anyhow after another dramatic one sentence paragraph we get this long and endless-seeming sentence. So, first, Lyra leaped up and seized Roger's hand. She pulled hard, and then they tore away from Lord Asriel and ran hand in hand. But Roger cried and twisted because his demon was caught again, held fast in the snow leopard's jaws, and Lord Asriel himself was reaching down toward her with a wire. And Lyra knew the heart-convulsing pain of separation and tried to stop But they couldn't stop. The cliff was sliding away beneath them. An entire shelf of snow sliding inexorably down. The frozen sea a thousand feet below. Lyra! Her heart beats, leaping in anguish with Roger's. Tight, clutching hands. His body suddenly limp in hers, and high above, the greatest wonder. At the moment he fell still, The vault of heaven, star studded, profound, was pierced as if by a spear. Uh, The writing here is so interesting, so poetic in its appearance on the page as each line slides into the next line below it until they recede again to that one word, lyra, in all caps. Each of these lines a sentence fragment or a fragment of, again, that long, run-on sentence that finally ends with the greatest wonder. And that's spelled out by the subsequent um, I finally get a, a complete sentence with it. Uh, the verb being pierced as if by a spear. Uh, the mother moder- uh, the modulation there uh, is so, so interesting. The fragments here uh, also evoke that separation taking place, and that separation, the shock of it, as we've heard, is possible, actually kills Roger in this moment, but of course opens up another world. The shearing off of the snow within one world is uh, recapitulated on a much grander scale, the, breaking through the fabric between the worlds. And in fact, that breaking uh, affects adjoining joining. And that's how they'll talk about it in Subtle Knife, as the world's being joined on in that moment. So, in the series of juxtapositions here, now, also the body of her friend is connected with the greatest wonder in nature or in supernatural events the way that that spear is evoked is followed in the next sentence by a likening to an arrow from a great bow Um, we could think here of other spear wounds the spear and the representations of Christ on the cross, the spear wound that is then uh, converted into the dolorous stroke uh, in Arthurian romance. And we could think, too, of other arrows. We could think of the bow or lyre of Heraclitus, or, for that matter, of Nietzsche, who speaks of Christianity itself as a great tension in the bow, teaching Western culture, how to read. Um, But this time, the music of the aurora has run aground. Um, The great rending, grinding, crunching, caring sound reached from one end of the universe to the other. There was dry land in the sky, sunlight. Sunlight shining on the fur of a golden monkey. There's a pause here, uh, an ellipsis, as we have to take in this unexpected turn, just as the sliding fall of that shelf of ice and snow, which caused separation to to, uh, come about, is, is halted somewhere lower down the cliff. Lyra watches and listens from that vantage point. "'from her accidental hiding place. "'Lyra could see over the trampled snow of the summit "'the golden monkey spring out of the air "'to the side of the leopard. "'She saw the two demons bristle, wary and powerful. Uh, "'And when Lyra looked up from them, "'Mrs. Coulter herself stood there, "'clasped in Lord Asriel's arms.' Lyra, helpless, could only imagine what had happened. Somehow Mrs. Coulter must have crossed that chasm and followed her up here, her own parents together, and embracing so passionately an undreamed-of thing. So, she heard her parents talking. Their argument, uh, concerns the repercussions of what Azrael has done, but also what role Mrs. Coulter should play in what he still has to do. Helping to spell out the parallels with the Genesis story, the language here is loaded. He has gone beyond being allowed or forbidden as if they were children, though it took the sacrifice of a particularly innocent child To do so. And rather than being exiled from paradise, he has broken out of his stifling exile and from the wasteland where he was sent. The threat of excommunication ceases to hold any terrors for him, since he wants to leave, and expects many others will too. He's accomplished a much more thorough reformation than any heretic. He says it's the end of the church. He seems to believe it because too many people want to go through with him. The church won't be able to stop them all. Against Mrs. Coulter's misgivings, he appeals to the fate accompli, the sensuous evidence of freedom. Look, look at the palm trees waving on the shore. Can you feel that wind? A wind from another world. Feel it on your hair, on your face. I read that that is a direct reference to a work of music uh, and poetry, uh, that is, music uh, set to poetry or, or vice versa. Um, there it is Schoenberg's String Quartet Number 2, and the poem or the lyrics Transcendence by Stefan George. And the flow of dust coming with that wind and that sunlight, which Miss Coulter characterizes as choking with sin and death and darkness, rather, um, will also have to be reconciled with the consciousness which reads the truth in images. The the working of the alethiometer is also caused by dust. A new consciousness breaking into the world is represented by that sort of modernist music and poetry which, when it was new, all but replaced the already failing religious faith among many in Western society. The Impact on Mrs. Coulter here is partly owing to this intellectual fervor, but partly also to her conflicted personal history with Asriel. So she's breathless. Rather, that's Lyra, sorry. Um, the woman clung to Lord Asriel as if she were dizzy and shook her head, distressed. No, no, they're coming, Azriel. They know where I've gone. And come with me away and out of this world. And she tries then to shift the conversation to her daughter. Um, that's uh, rather Asriel uh, brings in Lyra there because um, Mrs. Coulter says she dare not. And he says that Lyra would. And. Right? Um, he puts that right in her face that that uh, Mrs. Coulter had tried to mold her, but that uh, Mrs. Coulter, for her part, uh, gives the excuse that she was too coarse, too stubborn, had left it too late. Right. Um, so, this must be Quite the uh, conversation for Lyra to overhear in this moment. Um, And when she sees what happens next, his hand still clasping her head tense suddenly and drew her toward him in a passionate kiss, Lyra thought it seemed more like cruelty than love and looked at their demons to see a strange sight. The snow leopard tense crouching with her claws, just pressing in the golden monkey's flesh, and the monkey relaxed, blissful, swooning on the snow. That uh, is an illustration, I think, of how complex, um, how fascinating and yet cruel this love, this family love, this romantic love, is, Of course, celebrated in many ways, can also be. It's an important caveat from the narrator here, um, and it's it's very very lightly done. Uh, we don't get much of the of an idea of what Lyra thinks of all this, um, but the, the hints that we do get are telling. Uh, so this is where. Um, we get Mrs. Coulter's first name Um, again, Asriel demands that she come with him come and work with me we couldn't work together, you and I no, you and I could take the universe to pieces and put it together again, Marisa we could find the source of dust and stifle it forever And that, that uh, might not always be possible, right, to put back together something that's once been broken. And we'll see how hard it is to undo these changes that Azrael has wrought. Here, he tries again to bring Marissa along, promising to find the source of dust. He tells her that she can lie about anything else including the child, including her lovers, like Lord Boreal, who gets mentioned here. But ironically, later we'll learn that destroying dust was not his intention here, and that he was lying in an effort to secure her company. So going off of that later conversation, it seems that Asriel can't bring himself to follow his own dictum here. Don't lie about what you truly want he just has Um, as he continues to do while their demons are playing fiercely he says he wouldn't even bother to destroy her if she doesn't come that he'll cease to care about her at all which again turns out to be false but the light that plays behind him seems a lot like a crown or, or halo in one of Blake's visionary illustrations. But anyhow, she resists the power of his call. And in the end here, Mrs. Coulter opts not for that movement, that mysterious power of hers that we've observed all along off stage, as it were, but she opts instead to stay in the world not to leave it. And she does so, we're told, with an infinite beautiful sadness. Her face is a mask of tears, and Lyra can tell that they're real. As she keeps her balance and bears her demon away, though anyhow, certainly wants to go, Lyra watches coldly. So again, there's that implied judgment And it's understandable, but it also might be modified later by the shift Mrs. Coulter's character undergoes, albeit an abrupt one, and certainly looks a little different in the light of Lyra's own eventual separation from Will at the very end of the story. So now it's time for Lyra to make her decision having heard all the arguments on either side. Um, Such a vault of wonders she had never seen. Vault is a very interesting word to me, connoting the arch of the sky, but also the treasure hoard in the deep. And another rich ambiguity here. The city hanging there so empty and silent looked new-made, waiting to be occupied, or asleep, waiting to be woken. Each of those maybe projections of Lyra's innocence and Roger's peaceful rest in the golden glow of the sun that melts the snow on his face, uh, or rather on his hood. Um, She is nevertheless back where she started the chapter, crying. She felt wrenched apart with unhappiness and with anger too she could have killed her father if she could have torn out his heart she would have done so there and then for what he'd done to Raja and her tricking her how dare he so heart tearing out would not be unprecedented though the connection to Yorick's victory over Yofor is not made explicit And that combination now of sorrow and anger is yet another pairing that rings true. And at least part of it owes to Lyra's sense of her father having tricked her, which is exactly what she has done so well all along, not least to Yophor. But if that's the line of thought at all, it's interrupted. Um, Pantalaimon was saying something. But her mind was ablaze, and she didn't hear until he pressed his wildcat claws into the back of her hand to make her. She blinked. What? What? Dust, he said. So here comes the reversal that's been set up by Asriel's and the church's definitions of dust. And it amounts now to a total revaluation, whereas Asriel's rebellion could be seen as nothing but a misguided reprisal against the church's own violence. Here's how Pan leads up to it. He's going to find the source of dust and destroy it, isn't he? And the oblation board, and the church, and Bolvanger, and Mrs. Coulter, and all, they want to destroy it too, don't they? If they all think dust is bad, it must be good. Um, He goes on. We've heard them all talk about dust, and they're so afraid of it, and you know what? We believed them. Even though we could see that what they were doing was wicked and evil and wrong, we thought dust must be bad, too, because they were grown up and they said so. But what if it isn't? What if it's... She said breathlessly, Yeah, What if it's really good? So she sees his eyes ablaze with her own excitement. That seeing of oneself in another will be extended to Lyra's relationship to Will. Um, Lyra's dizziness here, feeling the sense of the world move or turn beneath her. This dramatic reorientation and recovery of purpose from a new level of perspective brings with it a healthy humility. But it's also very much like what Mrs. Coulter must have endured moments earlier when she kept her balance. They are stunned by the enormousness of this task. They're aware of how small they are and how little they know. They are aware, of course, that they Got it wrong. The evidence is still in Lyra's arms. And her kisses here, the last echo of her betrayal, I think, and her coming to terms with it too, perhaps. It's reminiscent of the revaluation of Judas in the Gnostic Gospel, the way that Christ is evoked by the spear piercing the heavens. I think Judas is evoked by the kiss here. And then, of course, there's that rending and crashing and that latent pun on crossing over into a new world. I guess it's possible that they're aware of that betrayal and the irreversible change and the paradoxical freedom and responsibility it engenders as they resolve to ask all the questions they can think of and do better next time. And contrary to what the narrator said at the end of the last chapter, or at least to understand it in a different sense, they're not alone anyway. And she knows what he means by this when Pan says it. Not like Tony Macarios. Not like those poor lost demons at Bullvanger. We're still one being. Both of us are one. And they, of course, have the alethiometer, that manifestation of questioning and the guarantor of truth as correspondence to the world, just as the demon is the guarantor of integrity, truth within oneself. And the fact that Asriel has left the alethiometer with Lyra suggests that he just possibly wished for her to persevere in just this way. I reckon we've got to do it, Pam. We'll go up there and we'll search for dust, and when we've found it, we'll know what to do. And we'll do it. So, these final sentences conjure a uh, certain amount of platonic imagery of leaving the cave to behold the light of the sun they also recall the opening sentence, where Pan and Lyra were going somewhere new together. Pullman's attention to these beginnings and endings will be conspicuous throughout, not unlike the stars in Dante. So Lyra and her demon turned away from the world they were born in and looked toward the sun and walked into the sky. End of book one, we're told. For recess, we'll want to imagine this final scene in all its cinematic opulence, the awesome lighting, the vibrant kaleidoscope of forms and colors, sound effects, all those brilliant demonic changes in the combat, but all in vain as they're thwarted by fate and by fate's cooperation with Lord Azriel's outrageous ambition, by the abrupt sidelining of Lyra, back to her original perspective, not from a wardrobe now, but from a shelf of snow on a cliff. She looks on and overhears, unseen, unnoticed by her parents. Unless it's possibly Asriel's uh, diversionary tactics there that leads him to kiss Mrs. Coulter, but I don't really think that's the case. So very much as we have been the whole time, unseen, unnoticed by the characters as readers, and so we'll wish all the more to see Lyra achieve some vindication for this this in the sequel. And we'll be crushed then by all the twists and turns that that Part of the story, too, will take at the end of The Subtle Knife the beginning of The Ember Spyglass. But then, there will finally be a kind of satisfaction in the return of Lyra's agency, its fulfillment, indeed, in the conclusion of The Ember Spyglass. And then the sequels uh, so far, primarily Lyra's Oxford and uh, The Book of Dust, um, the secret commonwealth that is coming out in the fall, where Lyra will be, again, the protagonist at last. And I've actually downloaded a copy, not of the new book, but of the old book, the book of folk tales called The Secret Commonwealth. That's where Pullman took that title, apparently. Um, you can find it for free online, but I haven't started reading it yet. I'm curious to see uh, if, or rather, how much else he'll uh, steal uh, or, you know, Borrow from that besides the title. And along these lines, I want to check in with a few other readers who've expressed some interest in collaborating in interesting ways on this project as it continues into the Subtle Knife um, and the rest of the books at some point. Um, But I've been unable to connect, so far at least, with anyone who knows much about video game development, on the one hand, and on the other, also has the time to work with me on such a purely imaginary product as this. Which is not entirely surprising, I guess. But, anyhow, for that reason, I'll leave that aspect to the imaginary video game component thing. I'll leave that more on the back burner for now. And stick to investigating the story for what it is. do a better job of delving into the writing uh, choices and uh, techniques and so forth that Pullman uses. I'll try also, I think, to reach more of a general audience maybe with the subtle knife discussions than I've been able to manage on the Golden Compass. Um, So any comments or help with how I might best go about adjusting this tone for a more general audience would, would be appreciated um, I think part of that is having had a live audience at NorwestCon 42 last weekend um, I was talking about Harry Potter with my co-podcaster and friend Sarah Miller and I think that probably is what has made me a little more conscious of the fact I should probably strive for that in my own podcast here too so at the end of the game, I think we'll have to have uh, just a brief roll of credits, uh, maybe one final uh, stirring song to evoke the bridge to the stars and Lyra's uh, going along it. Um, I've never been very clear on how exactly to picture this moment, um, We're told in the next book that it's very foggy and so it sort of obscures, I guess, what must have been sort of unclear for Pullman himself, too. Um, But anyhow, somehow, we'd have to represent it. We'd have to have a kind of retrospective glance, I think, over the many scenes of Lyra's world and uh, the characters there that we left behind, at least momentarily here. Um, And I really hope that you will have enjoyed playing this game if and when it ever becomes a reality. I certainly hope you've enjoyed the uh, podcast uh, ramblings that uh, we have converted this wonderful story into. I hope that it has unlocked or opened up something that is there in the story uh, and that it has given you a greater appreciation enjoyment of Pullman's golden compass. This is the penultimate episode. Of course, there is one more, but it's more of just a celebration, the question and answer and concluding remarks, uh, which I'll have for you next week. If you can join live, that would be fine. Uh, But you can also always send in any questions, comments, and ideas. And thanks again for listening. Take care.